The California Republican Party, a mess, a disgrace. Their path unclear. Democrats rule while they hide in fear. Yet in District 75, winds of change blow. Candidate Andrew Hayes stands tall, ready to go. everybody this is William Del Pilar and this is Fired Up and today I have a special episode and it is special because it is my first true interview. I have done interviews in the past but not for Fired Up and I am actually extremely proud to introduce this individual. His name is Andrew Hayes. He is a candidate for the State Assembly District 75 and ironically that is my district as well. Andrew is a lifelong resident of East County San Diego. For those of you not aware, East County is the district we are in that he is seeking to represent. He's dedicated his career to fighting for the conservative values he believes in and very impressive here, Andrew has two bachelor's degrees from the University of San Diego. To top it off, that's not a state university. <laughs> that's all that's right. <laughs> Andrew was elected to the Lakeside Union School District Board of Trustees in 2018 and now serves as president of the board. And I believe, Andrew, that is your first major political office, correct? Correct. And he is now running again for the State Assembly 75th District as Marie Waldron turns out of the seat. Andrew, I've known you since 2015. You are one of the sharpest individuals I have ever met. Uh, we're going to address that later on, but uh, and I don't say that to suck up. I say that is I'm not very impressed with today's youth in their education, their knowledge. It's a lot of it's indoctrination, but you know your your subjects inside and out. Whatever it is, you've made it a priority uh, to learn. So. With that said, I want to just jump right into this interview. No time for small talk, people. This is Andrew's biggest season. We have the the we have what less than a month, about two and two a half, weeks. three weeks away, two weeks, two weeks away. Two weeks from so, today. So we're or gonna tomorrow. get yeah, there you go. So we're gonna get right on in it. So first of all, let's talk about the California budget here. Uh, we've had we have a budget deficit that's going to impact what the legislature can and can't pass. From your perspective as a politician, as a constituent in this district, as a Californian, what are your specific goals in representing the people in what you want to see cut and kept for Californians? You don't have to get into specifics, but generalities and how it affects the district and for the good of California. Sure. Well, let's first talk about why the state budget is always such a disaster. So the state budget is a disaster uh, because we are we depend on the highest income earners uh, to fund our budget. So Silicon Valley funds our state budget. And so this is why we see these massive swings every year. And as a school board member, I can tell you uh, how important it is for schools to know what, you know, what we're supposed to budget. So uh, a couple things. The first thing is the bullet train needs to be defunded immediately. Just stop <laughs> funding it. I mean, we've literally funded it. I mean, seriously, we have spent so much money on this and it's, it's not gone anywhere. I mean, this is the most ridiculous thing. And by the way, that extra money should go right back into, uh, you know, funding existing programs. The, the problem that Sacramento has is that everybody sees this big budget, okay, and they see it as a way to, oh, let's fund a new program. Great. Mm -hmm. We've got lots of cash. Let's fund a new program. 
we don't fund existing programs. So I would much rather fund existing programs. I'll give you a couple examples. One is we don't reimburse doctors, Medi-Cal, full market rate. We don't reimburse them. So we wonder why people have healthcare access problems, particularly in rural districts like the one that I live in and the one you're a part of, right? This, that's a huge issue. And that's one of the reasons why. So instead, they always want to create these new massive programs that aren't going to do anything. So uh, the bullet train need to stop funding that, need to stop funding uh, uh, for illegal immigrants. They should not get any funding whatsoever. Um, I don't know why we encourage this. Uh, the other thing is uh, unemployment program is broken. Uh, mm-hmm. And the thing about unemployment is that, you know, we gave we gave unemployment to um, felons during the pandemic. Uh, I'd love to see that repaid. I mean, this is ridiculous. <laughs> so, I mean, there are so many different things that we can cut from the budget and then invest in real things. So let me give you a practical investment that I want to see happen in this district. Um, I would love to see uh, additional water storage uh, facilities uh, and dams be rebuilt and secured. In this district, almost every reservoir uh, in San Diego County is in this assembly district. Uh, so El Capitan Reservoir, Hodges, all of these other big lakes, that dams are old and they are falling apart and we have to drain water from them because the dams are so weak. Right. I'm sorry, we should be able to fund those priorities. That would create great local jobs for uh, our folks in this district. Uh, it would also incur- increase our ability to have water storage uh, you mm-hmm. know, for drought. So to me, that's so common sense. And it wouldn't cost the $60 billion that we're putting into the bullet train. Okay? It wouldn't cost that right. much. So right. these are practical things that we can do. Um, you know, and the state budget is huge. But I, I don't want to be the you know, Debbie Downer. But in order to get a seat at the table in the state budget, we need to win more seats in the state legislature. Right. And, and that's how a seat that I'm running for can help. See, I can help win uh, elections for other Republicans in swing seats across this state so that we can get back to a seat at the table. To get a seat at the table, we need a one-third block in either house so that we get a seat. Now, let me tell you. In 2014, we had that, and I remember those days, and I call them the golden era because we actually had an we actually had the ability to block tax increases at the state level. Right now, they can and, push down whatever we want. And, Andrew, so what you're referring to is the supermajority that Democrats have, where they can pass anything. Uh, just for right. the audience out there, believe it or not, a lot of Californians aren't aware of the the the, the supermajority. If you could just take 10, 15 seconds to explain that to that, because a lot of people are, are like, well, why can't the Republicans vote against it? We don't have the numbers. And to make yep. it worse, we have this two-thirds uh, supermajority. Can you explain that real quick? Correct. Uh, so the, the first thing is uh, we have a we have a supermajority Democrats. What does that mean? Well, supermajority means over two-thirds of each house is uh, Democrats. So just to give you a numbers perspective, right, out of 80 state assembly members, 18 are Republicans. So that that just gives you uh, a gist of what the, the gauntlet is, right? And I believe that we can restore California, and I believe that we can, you know, reverse the slide that we're in, uh, but we have to use the targeted issues. And of course, quality of life issues like the budget are certainly one of them. Um, so that's kind of the nutshell of the majority. One question, Andrew, this is uh, maybe a little bit into the weeds, but uh the pensions are never part of the budget. I've read reports that we are we could be into one to three trillion dollars worth of pension debt. I mean, 
most people just aren't aware of that, but it's something I've always been aware of. And to be quite honest, it scares the hell out of me because I'm like, yeah. as we are getting older and older with the boomers and more and more retiring, how it may not happen during your, if you get elected and let's say you serve for 12 years, you know, in, in however capacity, it may not hit within those 12 years, but it's going to hit one day. Uh, should we be looking at that as part of the budget? Or I guess, we seem to be hiding Absolutely. that a bit. How do we, I mean, how do we educate the people? How do we change it to make this work, I guess? Well, it, I mean, it's really actually quite simple. Uh, the, the, just the legislators have to decide to take, so whenever we say we have a budget surplus, right? So let's say they have, we have $100 billion. Last year, we had a $100 billion budget surplus. This year, we're a deficit at $38 billion. Um, but let's say that we have a $100 billion budget surplus. What we can do is we can take part of that surplus and pay down our existing unfunded liability, which would lower the cost of the pension uh, problem, right? Because what we're doing is we're taking a lump sum of money and we're paying down debt. You, mm -hmm. It's just like if you have debt in any business or any any other, uh, you know, uh, finance, any other home finance, right? If you pay a larger lump sum and you pay double payments, right? You're going to, your interest rates are lower and your long-term debt is going to be lower, right? And so, the state can do the same thing with our pensions, right? And so uh, we just don't. Now, one thing that the state sometimes does, and since Governor Brown, they've backed away from this, uh, is they take you know pieces of the surplus, and what they do is they pay what's called the employer contribution uh, for PERS and STRS, right? Mm -hmm. And they pay, they give you know a big lump sum and pay it down. Well, the irony of this is that. This is why the pension system's all screwed up, by the way. The irony of this is <laughs> the employer is a government agency. So the employer is taxing people to pay for the pensions. And the state comes in and says, well, we're going to help you, employer. We're going to pay down PERS. We're going to pay down STRS. Well, that's my money anyway. What yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, so it's this reverse kind of it's this reverse kind of crazy thing uh, that they do. But they should, by the way. They should do more of that because then it lowers the tax burden on all of us, right? So um, all that's to say is that while it's wonky and crazy, at the same time, uh, they could do it. Now, what I would love to see is I would love to see an on I would love to see a, a stabilization account created in the state budget for our pension system alone. Meaning we throw money in when we have surpluses and we pay mm -hmm. down the debt in addition to whatever we're paying, right? I would love to see that. Right. Now that's too common sense for Sacramento, but I was about to say that that's just smart business there, and uh, uh, it's just politicians don't don't. I always tell people, look, anybody can be a politician, but you have to have an understanding of numbers, of the law, of, of retirement numbers, things like that. It's an education, and we're going to get that to to that with you uh, later on. Uh, but that's a great answer. I, I thank you. That the pension scares me. I think more people should understand uh, how it's a potential massive red flag uh, down the road, and it seems like. Both sides at times just don't even mention it or talk about it. I guess what I'm trying to say is when I hear we have a budget surplus, I'm like, do we really have one? You know, if you counted the pension. The answer is no. If you take into account all of our unfunded mandates. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So let's move on to another big 
national issue that is impacting California directly. And we're kind of leading the nation in, in, in the negative side of all this. And that's homelessness. Homelessness. And for the audience, California has the highest number of homeless than any other state. We have about 49% of all the homeless in the country, in our state. Newsom has allocated $13 billion to the homeless. And in essence, everything has failed and failed completely. Now, I, if, I, if I'm correct, one billion has actually been used or is the process being used and he wants the other 12 billion. Uh, what is your stance on this issue with 13 billion allocated uh, since, or trying to get allocated since Newsom took office? And what, we get a lot of political answers, and, but from your perspective, what actually needs to happen to start really taking care of the homeless issue? Yeah, I mean, to me, yeah. So first thing is, uh, I don't want to see any more money go to the homeless programs until we have benchmarks set up. So here's part of the reason why. So we have so much more homeless. All the state does is just fund. They just say, mm -hmm. here's the money, go. So we do housing first, which has failed. We do all these other things that have failed, clearly, because we have more homeless. We reward homeless. And one yes. of the things that they one of the things that they have in this state and that we call it, and I don't like this term, but they have it, is it's called low barriers. Well, what does low barriers mean? Low barriers mean that if you're a homeless person and you want to shoot up, you can go to a state sponsored oh, yeah. facility and you can shoot up. It's low barrier. Why do they call it low barrier? All they want is people off the street. They don't mm -hmm. care if they're getting help. They don't care if they're getting the services that they need. They just want them out of sight, out of mind in a homeless hotel. And we've seen all of those things happen, right? Well, that's clearly failed. So right. what do we need to do to actually fix the problem? Well, to me, again, I have found, as I've been around a little bit longer in some of this, that too complex sometimes is just too complex. Here's the simplest version of what needs to happen. We know from the data, this is un in undisputed data, over 90% of the homeless have mental illness. 90%. Wow. I did not we know, know it was that high. We wow. know, we know, we know that it's drug induced, alcohol induced, mental illness. I mean, we know, we know that for a fact, right? And I may be wrong on 90, but I'm going to tell you, it's close. We're, I mean, it is very high. So when we look at that, we go, okay, so we're not going to give you services. We're going to let you roam free and scream at a wall. And I, and I, and I share this story because I think it's really important for us to understand, you know, that these are real people. So, you know, in Lakeside, I was driving down a one, our main street, I don't know, two months ago, three months ago. And there's this guy, he's our token homeless guy, you know, who everybody knows and they right. like him, you know, when, he, when he's on his meds, right. He's great. Um, and he's, he actually is functional. Well, he was clearly off his meds because it was about nine o'clock and he was screaming at a wall and punching it out. Oh. And I'm going, there's literally nothing I can do legally to get him into the services that he needs because we can't compel people into services. We can't force people into services. The ACLU has said you cannot take people and force them into services to get help. Correct. You can't do it. Correct. And I just don't. Go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. So I was going to say, look, I just don't believe that that's right. I believe that you should be able to set benchmarks for somebody and say, look, you're clearly screaming at a wall. You need help. Let's get you help. Here are the benchmarks. 
and let's put you into a faith-based or non-faith-based nonprofit that has benchmarks. I prefer faith-based because they are not low barrier, they're high barrier, and they require you to do something, right? You can't just sit on your fanny all day long. So the point is, is that it's really not that difficult to solve. It's just that we have to change the way the code is written. Now, one of the ways that the the big debate right now is changing the definition of what's called gravely disabled. And that was a huge debate in Sacramento a couple of years ago. Uh, and and I, I think it should come back forward uh, because this ties into the care court that Newsom has put together, which, by the way, uh, it's not going to have much success because it's so narrow. But mm-hmm. my view is, is that it really should be expanded. Right. And if we expand the term gravely disabled, we'll be able to compel these folks into services. We'll be able to put them into services, whether it be faith based. But there has to be benchmarks. I'm not going to give government money to somewhere that doesn't have a benchmark. Andrew, when you say gravely disabled, can you give us a couple of examples of what would qualify as somebody gravely disabled? Well, most of the people who are screaming at the wall that I mentioned would be considered gravely disabled. Um, and, and this has been part of the the discussion, right, is we part of the discussion has been, well, do you want to bring back the mental health hospitals that Reagan got rid of? Right. I mean, do we want to do that? The answer then becomes, well, I don't know the answer to that because we have to do something because we can't let this continue to happen. And we can't continue to be a dumping ground for homeless who see goodies coming out of this. Right. And and by the way, I just have to figure out, well, look, gravely disabled means people screaming at a wall. Right. And there's a whole right. there's a whole code on it. So I can't I can't quote it all, but there's a whole code right. on it. And and basically, though, from my view, looking at changing that law to make it a little more um, you know, expansive so we can include more people to get greater services so that we can clean up the streets and get people services, because this is not just about getting people off the street. It's about keeping them off the street. And the only way to do that is when you address the root causes of homelessness, which we know are Correct. drug and alcohol-induced uh, mental health issues. And, and that's, that is the core. And, and one of the only ways to do that, one of the only tools, is to change the way the code reads these people. Because right now, it's they have a right to scream and yell at the wall and get drunk on the street. Right. And, you know, Andrew, that's that's the problem I see. Uh, I was born and raised as an American citizen in a third world country. Well, technically, Panama was not a third world country. It was the only country that in the in that part of the hemisphere that had a middle class until Noriega took over. Then we kind of dropped in rankings. But my point yeah. is, is I've seen relatives on drugs. I, I've seen friends here in the military on drugs. I saw a, 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 a 20 year Navy veteran set to retire, get hooked on meth. And what people don't realize is politicians, it's easy to sit there and pretend you have compassion. But having a drug den is not compassion. That's just waiting for the druggie to OD. And it's I always joke, but who knows? It's a form of population control. You're getting rid of the people as they OD. And uh, uh, drugs are addictive. I have an addictive personality. I'm good with numbers. I was good at fantasy sports. I understood gambling, but I never gambled because I have an yep. addictive personality. And and I'm lucky I understand that, but most of these people on the streets don't. They also don't realize that a lot of veterans want 
they choose not to take their drugs, their prescriptions, because of how it affects them. And we actually, the federal government has programs specifically directed. So it seems like the right hand doesn't want to work with the left hand. And for a politician, it's easier to feign compassion and do what people just look at. Oh, I think he's doing a good thing. He's trying to help him. No, a drug then is not helping him. And uh, uh, I agree with you. I think the problem is easier to fix than politicians want to admit. But by actually fixing it, they may not be seen as the good guy. You know, that tough love. I always tell parents, you know, it's easy to give your kids what you never had. It's harder to say no for their betterment. And, and, and boy, I do deal with that with siblings. I'm sure you've seen that. But anyway, this isn't about me. It's about you. Uh, let's move on quickly to the housing part of it. You kind of alluded to it. Uh, 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 from the homeless perspective, there talking about housing first and putting them in, but then I've never really seen, like as you kind of alluded to, there's no programs to actually help them. So it seems like all we've done is taking them from the streets to create drug dens. Uh, uh, in essence, a whole infrastructure of bad things happening at those hotels or houses. So uh, obviously it sounds like you are not for the housing first, but how would what would be your first step to try to get this uh get them off the streets and i'm not going to hold you to this uh, uh uh because there's more than one answer and just because you may believe in something you may not have the support to do it but how do you see it from your perspective to the first step to get them off the street well first off we need we need the messaging to help us get them off the street right i mean i you have to convince people that that housing first doesn't work right and right now a lot of people believe that housing first works, right? I mean, you and I know it doesn't. And a lot of people out there think, oh, that's great. Let's get them house first and then we'll take care of the issues. Well, no, see, it, it can't just be, we're gonna give them a house and then we're not gonna do anything, right? So there has to be some benchmarks. Now, one of the things that I I would you know be open to seeing is, um, you know, again, setting benchmarks. This is not that difficult, by the way, right? Like saying that they need to hold down a job for two months, saying that they need gotcha. to do all of these different things. You can say, before we pay any more rent, you're not getting any more rent and, until you get a job. Andrew, you hit it on the head. In our, all our talk in terms of the homelessness and the housing just now, I think you hit it on the head. Politicians don't want to put accountability and responsibility on the homeless. And that's the main reason we're in this mess, because if you don't hold them accountable or give them responsibility and teach trust back and forth and, and, and everything that we're all taught as children becoming adults, I think that I think you hit on the head. That's where the failure. Now, that's the homeless side. But for the uh, constituent, you know, affordable housing is extremely rare. And when I say I should not have used that term, when I say affordable housing, I'm just talking about for the average everyday Joe, yes. affordable housing is a term used in California for, for, for housing for lower income. I'm referring for the working class. It's rare. People who work in San Diego are buying homes in Riverside because that's all, that's where they can afford them at. Uh, now they say homeless is, is, a, is a big source of the cost, but so are land and labor costs. We have density restrictions. Uh, uh, and, and and that's some of the primary causes of the lack of housing. So how do we fix it? But before you answer, density restrictions appear to be more of we're going to rezone and allow an apartment complex smack dab in the middle of a family housing suburb. Uh, is that right or fair to those living there? Because to me, that's one of these unseen issues that people don't realize is happening. The rezoning in an apartment, giving permission for apartment complexes, and that seems to be the state 
the Democrat solution, putting us all in, in apartments versus our American dream of, of wanting a home. Where do you stand uh, uh, on that? Sure. Well, great. Well, this is a great topic. So firstly, uh, I'm with you. Uh, I don't like using the term affordable housing. Um, in fact, uh, I use the term and I'm trying to get everybody who I talk to to use the term uh, term attainable housing. Uh, <laughs> there you go. Because, because what that does is that it shows that we're trying to achieve the dream of American homeownership. Right. And right. and everyone should be able to afford a home. That's part of the American dream. That's part of it. And, and I believe that everybody should have that opportunity without me having to subsidize you. You know, now one of the things that that we see is that the state and look for, quite frankly, local government have messed this up royally. I mean, royally messed this up. And let me explain kind of how this goes. So the state is now responding to the housing crisis by saying we're going to force rezoning down your throat because local governments won't manage their own growth. They'll just say we're not going to grow. NIMBY. Well, exactly. <laughs> so they're going to say, we're not going to grow. We're just not going to do it. And that's because many times, you know, there's a packed city council meeting with 300 people that says we don't want any more housing. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, those kinds of decisions have been made for decades now. Right. And, and, and it, it stifled any opportunity of growth. And so one of the things that we have not been able to do is, is see any more housing stock be built that's that's really going to address the, the problem, right? And when I talk about housing stock, I'm talking about, you know, condos, apartments, mm -hmm. single family, luxury. It's a whole spectrum. You can't just have one-sided, you know, policy, right? Which is what the state's right. trying to do right now. They're saying, we're just going to build, you know, apartments. Well, Correct. that's not what everybody wants. So, you know, so they're saying, well, we're just going to increase housing stock because to me, they're misreading the law of economics, right? And the law of demand. They're saying it's just a supply and demand issue. Well, that's it is a supply and demand issue for each section of housing, not just this one area, right? So what they're trying to do is respond to this idea that, oh, well, we just need to build. We just need to build. We just need to build. Well, I'm with you. We just need to build. But we don't just need to build one kind of housing. There's numerous other kinds that we need to build. So for me, the, the, the core issue that, that San Diego County faces with this is what's called uh, vehicle miles traveled, the VMT. Wow. And VMT uh, is what literally uh, makes most of San Diego County off uh, the record for building, right? Like you just can't build because VMT, the way it's been interpreted by the county, uh, and, and by the way, the way the state says that, and then the way the county implements it, right? And the county is run by a majority Democrats. And so they don't want to see any more building because of the VMT. Well, guess what? The only places to build in this county are in, are in basically east of the 15. Mm -hmm. And that's really where the only opportunities are. So look, I want to see things get built. I want to have local property owners have exercised their property rights because they have inherent property rights to build. But when you build, you need to make it fit your community. But at, at the same time, we just have to have we just have to have proposals to build. Right now, no everyone who's going to develop anything is leaving this state. They're they're like I'm out of here. I'm done. I'm not building. I can't. We can't afford it. Labor is too expensive. Supplies are too expensive. The VMT is jamming us 
too much because our trucks are going to be driving back and forth and we're going to be adding another, you know, $150,000 onto a cost of a home just because of regulatory cost. And it's, by the way, that's a low number. It's probably quite, quite a bit more. In fact, I read a study a few years ago that was 60% is regulatory. So, wow. um, I mean, when we look at this stuff, it's a matter of local governments saying, hey, we're going to continue to think that these property owners and landowners and developers and citizens, quite frankly, are the cash cows that are going to pay for this stifling of development. And quite honestly, I'm really frustrated about it. As a young person, uh, I can't afford to buy, you know, an average home in San Diego County. It's eight, like 800 grand. And you in can, order to afford yeah. that, you have to do, you have to, you have to make 200 plus thousand dollars a year. Uh, I don't know about you, but I don't make $250,000 a year. So, you know, the point is this is becoming unattainable for people of all shapes and sizes and it's wrong. And, and the real way to, to deliver this is by saying, look, these environmental restrictions cannot limit opportunity for people to build uh, in an appropriate way. I'm not saying that, you know, we want to pay, you should pave over, you know, open space. What I'm saying right. is, is that you should, if somebody has property they want to develop, don't make it difficult. Stop making it right. so difficult. You know, Andrew, you bring up a good point, and uh, I, I yelled out the term NIMBY for people not aware, not in my backyard. And when I got involved in politics and got elected to the local board here, we did have a big issue. Now, uh, this is something I haven't heard any politician ever address. Why? Because it's too into the weeds, yet it's one of the most important aspects of development that uh, uh, creates tragedy, and that is the infrastructure. Uh, we had a project here called Lilac Hills, big old mm -hmm. development. Yep. On the surface, I was like, yeah, man, we need more housing. Then when I ran, I actually started learning about the issue. And I was like, oh, my God, we don't have the roads. What if there's a fire? Where's the water? All this, all these numbers and the, the developers and, and those pushing this just wanted to gloss that over. But for the people living here, that was one of the biggest issues. And to me, that was one of the drop dead issues. No, unless you add roads or fix the roads or do whatever needs to be done, this is a no go. And, and so it seems to me like the state wants to throw a lot of housing up with as minimal money put into the infrastructure. But at the same time, the local residents keep fighting, fighting, fighting. And what they don't realize is what I told them would happen. If we don't get housing, eventually the station's gonna come over, take over and say, screw you constituent, this is what's happening. And the example I gave of putting an apartment complex in the middle of a suburb, which is actually happening in certain spots or actually has been talked about at least, uh, is a real thing. So I think it's one of the, Issues where we have it's so many fronts have got to come together. You were uh, your position represents the people, the developers, and then you got the, the 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 big with the power players, you know, the governor and things like that. But it doesn't seem like anybody wants to come together, and everybody's suffering. Uh, uh, I know you want to fight this, you want to change this. How long do you realistically, uh, before we go on to the next topic, how long do you realistically think this is going to go on before an actual realistic solution comes about? That's a great question. Um, you know what? It's been able to go this long and nobody's done anything about it. So God knows it could, it could take a lot longer. You know, here's the thing. I just want to see something good happen. And to me, what that looks like is people being able to buy a home where the heck they want to. 
right? And and mm-hmm. and so, I mean, it's that simple. If somebody wants to move to Valley Center and buy a home, they should be able to move to Valley Center and buy a home. If somebody wants to move to Lakeside and buy a home, they should be able to move to Lakeside and buy a home. Right now, that's cost prohibitive for everybody. Right. So, right. so my view is on on all of this stuff. We just have to have the right solution. And I think what what people, I think local control on housing is is the best option because what ends up, and, and that it looked like that for a very long time until we started getting into this cycle of, well, the state puts all these rules on it. The state does this, the state does that until the point to where local governments were like, well, that's a lot. And man, it's going to take us forever. And we, you know, you know, all this other stuff. So all that's to say though, long-term, right. I think it's going to take us a long time to dig out of this because we're, Again, remember, we're going to have to unwind all the things that created this. Mm -hmm. And as opposed to just passing new bills and new laws that say we should do additional things, why don't we review what we've done and see if that's done anything? Right. Correct. And and I think that when we when we start looking at that, and I have to look at that as a school board member all the time, you have to review what you've done. I don't want to come up with new ideas. I'd much rather review what we've done and see if it's worked. If it hasn't worked, we should probably stop doing it. So, um, you know. <laughs> Andrew, politicians never look at the results of what they create. They always brag about creating it. And that, that that's yes. my concern. Uh, here's a question I should ask you with the homeless. but uh, And I just came across it doing my research. Uh, is California Proposition 1, are you aware of that? Oh, I'm aware of it and I oppose it. Okay. Okay, so you oppose it. Okay, yeah. And my question to, to you, uh, we don't have to spend much time on it, but for the people to understand, it's about the main thrust I got out of it is a $6.38 billion in bonds of fund housing for the homeless individuals, and they save veterans. I'm, o- I'm always leery when they throw in veterans. It's more for political gain. And that includes $4.4 billion for mental health care and drug or alcohol treatments and $2 billion for housing of the ho- homeless. Obviously, you said you are for or against this. Uh, uh, is that one of the reasons why? And is there a specific reason you would tell people not to vote for this? Oh, yeah. It's because it's a tax increase for homeless housing. That's what this yeah. is. And I'm sorry. We have we just talked about it. We are the most homeless in this in the country. And, and, and this is another this is this is a goodie program. Right. Like this is for this is goodies to encourage bad you know, continuing bad behavior. See, I want to see the problem solved. Again, housing is not the full component of solving homelessness. So, you know, that is not the issue. The issue is the mental health stuff. And I want to see that get addressed. And the bottom line is we can't afford any more taxes in this state. Understand what a bond is, right? I mean, right. it's a tax increase. So, exactly. you know, we, we can't, we, we just can't afford it. I mean, Californians can't afford one more tax. I mean, this is, again, it's death by a thousand cuts. We just can't afford it. So, yeah, I've, of course, you know, one of the primary reasons I am posing it is because of the homelessness stuff. I mean, we should not throw more and more money at something without having any benchmarks, because what's the benchmark here? Correct, correct. And, and and I think they try to push a lot of these off of compassion. I don't know uh, uh, how old you are, but I remember back in the 90s uh, 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 when I first moved to California and I noticed, man, this state never doesn't pass a school bond. Then in the 90s, it happened. 
for the first time ever. And I think people have just had enough. And I think since the 90s, it's been a battle. And I think, I guess what I'm trying to say is it seems that people are smartening up a, a, a bit and that's caused because they're being hit in the pocketbooks. Uh, uh, and now they, they are, they're, they're starting to understand not everything is compassionate. And I'm with you. You have to have benchmarks. You have to be a resource oriented individual for these programs to succeed. And historically, politicians never are. So uh, 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 I appreciate that answer. And, uh, so, so some other constituents may not, but I have compassion as a veteran coming from a, uh, my father served. Uh, I always joke, go, my brother served, my sister, my sister, my sister served, everybody served. So I've seen homeless veterans and, and, and I have compassion, but this to me is not the answer. Andrew, I want to, I'm sorry, go ahead. You're going to say something. I was just going to be on the homeless veteran front, right? Look, there are, we aren't treating our veterans right. We're not doing that. Look, no. if the, no veteran should be homeless. See, the, the fact that we're even having the conversation is not right. So no veteran should be homeless at all, at all. And to the extent that the state should support them, again, with the right benchmarks, this would not be a problem. But you see, we're not, we're not setting, what we're saying to people is, well, you're homeless, you just get a house, here you go. I'm you know, I'm sorry. You, you, you. That's another nail you hit on the head. Uh, whether it's 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 a Latino, I, whether illegal or legal. I'm. I, we're not talking about that at the moment. Uh, obviously, I want legal <laughs> immigrants. Yes. But the point is, is we want a hand up. We don't want to be just treated like here's a couple of bucks. You go stay in your corner and that's the corner you're going to live in for the rest of your lives. When they start talking about uh, raising the minimum wage so somebody can earn $30 a, a, an hour to feed their family. I'm like, no, how about you inspire them to go to school, educate? So we seem as politicians not to care about growing and increasing uh, what makes America exceptional, exceptional by instilling the drive to achieve more. We seem to be a country that's now okay with just giving uh, uh, breadcrumbs and telling people you are who you are and we'll keep you fat and happy where you are, even though it's only breadcrumbs. Uh, uh, that, that, that's a great point, Andrew. I, I appreciate that. Uh, before we move on, any final comments uh, on the homeless uh, situation? Or no, it's actually, like I said earlier, it's a lot more simple than everybody wants to make it to be. Gotcha. No, I, I agree. I agree. It's difficult. Don't get me wrong, people, but we make it much more difficult than it should be. Okay, Andrew, I wanted to talk about some of your statements that you've made. Uh, uh, just for my notes, I shorted them, but I had all quotes I had gotten. Uh, uh, so uh, the cost of living. Your goal is to ease the financial burden on our district's residents by lowering taxes like the gas tax and making government more efficient and, and effective. And, and I get that, but that's something every politician says. And one of the questions that I have never really heard asked, and it's not asked because there really is no answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway, is, well, we're in the minority. How do you propose to create a coalition and convince Democrats to make this happen? Like I said, it's easy to say this, but how do we go about actually making it happen? Yeah, no, I'm, I appreciate you asking that. I think it's a good question. Um, well, look, here's the thing. So in order to get anything done, you're going to have to work with somebody in Sacramento who you may not agree with. And that sounds like an evil concept, right? Uh, particularly to some people who like to scream really loud about stuff. But here's the deal. Nothing will get accomplished if you don't find common ground. And I'm going to tell you right now, the cost of living is common ground for people in this state. Correct. Democrats can't afford to live here either. Mm -hmm. So I'm not, not just Republicans are the ones who are fleeing this state. 
Okay, I mean, let's be real. Democrats are fleeing too. Independent voters, libertarian voters, they're fleeing the state because they can't afford to live here. This is a common sense quality of life issue. Now, let's talk about what is costing them all this money, right? Well, there's all the, whether it's gas taxes, whether it's this new homeless tax that's being, you know, uh, proposed, whether it's any any on the spectrum, how do you get it done? Well, guess what? You have to target the districts. Look, the people in Correct. Silicon Valley, right? The Democrats in Silicon Valley, they're not going to want to do anything about quality of life, right? Why? Because everybody there, everyone their constituents makes $2 million a year. That's right. right? But let's talk about the disproportionate share that the gas tax puts on, the burden on the Latino community in L.A. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, heck, here's San Diego about, County, driving from Riverside to go work in San Diego. Correct. Let's talk about the disproportionate share that the gas tax is going to charge folks who are driving in downtown L.A., might be crossing the border. Who knows, right? What I'm saying is, is that the gas tax is a huge thing that we can build bridges on, but you have to be willing to go and talk to somebody and say, this is how it's impacting your constituents. Don't you see it? And, and by the way, there are, shockingly, a few Democrats that would see that. We have to find them. It's my job yeah. to get up to Sacramento and find these people to deliver results. And let me tell you, make things less worse because my job is to have incremental gains. I, I Look, I can't go up there and blow up Sacramento and win and, and get everything done. And, and by the way, if people are going to promise you that, they're lying to you. Because yeah. the fact of the matter is, is that uh, I go up there. I'm going to work really hard to deliver things and make things less worse for my district. And one of the ways to do that is find common ground on these issues that matter to all Californians and cost of living is one of them. That's why it's such a pillar of my, of my uh, campaign because local tax, local tax increases can get beaten at the local level. I can help beat local tax increases like I've done on on my school board. I beat a local tax initiative and we just fought it back, right? We can do those things locally, but how do we, negotiate getting things done in Sacramento. Well, it's about finding those people who will say, yep, my constituents can't afford it anymore. And right. we get a Democrat to do it. And by the way, there will be and are Democrats who will yeah. work on this. And we've seen it already. We've seen it already. So it's not like, you know, it's not like they don't exist. You know, it, it's not a conversation for, for today, but I have to put my two cents in. One of the reasons I, I think we are at a two, that Democrats have a two-thirds majority is, I have never seen, since getting involved directly with the local party in 2015, I have never seen, I'm sure it's happened with a few, I've never seen a Republican go into a Democrat district, the campaign. And I think if that happens, they can, they start hearing the truth. Whether they vote Republican or Democrat isn't the point. But if they start hearing the truth, then they start asking their representatives. And I know this for a fact as a Latino in Riverside with a program that I wasn't part of before my time, but I was told about where Republicans who were Spanish speakers were going into Riverside. It had to do with an abortion type bill. But when they were talking to these individuals and they had Spanish speakers, many of them didn't even realize they assumed their Democrat representative was conservative. And and my point being is all they have to do sometimes is hear it for the first time. If they never heard it, they're living their lives. They're trying to earn money to pay the bills or raise their kids. They may not be aware. So I also appreciate your honesty. Uh, you're right. Uh, uh, 
Government is a slow grind. You're not going to blow anything up, especially with your one-man show. It's easier to destroy you than for you to make success. So I appreciate that. Now, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I had to ask because I'm not going to lie. I've known Andrew for a while, but this one kind of didn't set me up. But I was like, huh? You mentioned uh, – first of all, the question is what policies would you enact and how do you enact them? So, But here's what brings this question up. is you were talking about controlling uh, uh, and creating policies uh, to reduce and in, in, in fight, fight inflation, and the reason I raise my eyebrow is inflation is a product of monetary policy, demand and supply, demand and supply meaning the contractors, the sellers pass the costs on to us cost push inflation uh, and American expectations. If Americans expect bad times, they may not spend. So uh, 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 so I didn't want to crawl, come across, man, what are you talking about? As much as, okay, fair enough, but what what could you really enact to 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 minimize or, or end inflation? It just seems well, a bit unrealistic in that sense. That's all. Well, just don't forget that California is the fifth largest economy in the world. And so we, we do have a role in how our what we do does have an impact on inflation in this nation. It absolutely does. Um, whether we spend, how we spend it, do we spend too much? Are we spending too little? You know, all of those things impact it. But you're right on this point, and I want to just share about kind of why I'm thinking in these terms. If we create more opportunity for people to have jobs, for people to have, uh, you know, put reduce regulations to put more money into the economy. While it's a small, while it could be very small in impact, it's still going to have an impact on inflation. It'll, it could cool down the rate of inflation. If more people are able to buy a home here, that could encourage more uh, investment, which would help national, uh, which would help the national level. So, I mean, there's lots of things that we feed into. As you know, the economy is not just, you know, the federal economy versus the state economy, we feed into everything. And and because we're so big, what we do can impact the nation and inflation. And so I think it really comes down to, though, are we creating more demand for jobs? Are we creating, you know, more ability for people to buy a home? Because as we talked about, if you do that, <laughs> that actually is helpful in controlling inflation, as we see, right? Because uh, interest rates and everything are impacted by all that, right? So right. to me, it's in the weeds but how we dictate state policy may have a little bit of an impact. And heck, if we can have a 0.25% impact, I'm good, right? You know, yeah. uh, because, that, because that helps us. That's the best answer. Sometimes you get into the weeds, you forget the obvious. A strong economy that provides jobs, the ability for Americans to spend on things like a home, that helps tend to get us out of inflation at times, you know? And uh, right. uh, who thought? The easiest answer is the correct answer. Uh, uh, it's just it's just you look at so many things that are, have outside external forces, but your job is, is to make sure our state has the ability to create jobs and, and, and provide a cost of living that's affordable for Americans. And, and, and great answer, great answer. You got me there because I, I was trying to think, how can you do this? And, and, and that's actually the uh, uh, best and truly only answer if you think about it. Okay. Now let's get something that's, uh, uh, I have about two Valley Center questions and this one isn't part of it, but it may as well be because we've been directly impacted about this. And uh, uh, you talked about uh, public safety. Crime is on the rise in our state. Homelessness, escalating crime rates and disproportionate placement of SVPs. Translation, sexually violent predators. Uh, and that's in my district specifically. There's been 
two or three instances where we've had to fight that off. The police and firefighters endorse you because you say you're going to work closely with them to address those issues. Uh, if you can uh, uh, explain to the audience uh, some of your ideas or thoughts and how you could help make that happen working in conjunction with the police and fire department. I'm sure. Well, first off, uh, SVPs should not only be placed in rural communities. So that's number one. And they're always placed in the back country of San Diego County, whether it's <laughs> Valley Center, whether it's uh, Cumba, whether it's Campo. I've been on the front lines fighting these uh, issues uh, for a long time. And here's, here's the core problem. And again, it gets into the weeds, but it's important for context. The SVP placement program is run by a, uh, a it's outsourced by the state to a, a group called Liberty Healthcare. Liberty Healthcare uh, is a group that, that, places SVPs because SVPs are allowed and it's legal to, you know, let them out. In fact, the Department of State Hospitals who oversees the program has to release them at some point. So they have contracted with Liberty Healthcare to be the placement, select the placements of these, um, uh, you know, these folks. And by the way, let me clarify what an SVP is. An SVP is defined in code as somebody who has a mentally diagnosed issue. Okay, Psych they, so they have a psychological issue and they've offended and will likely reoffend. And we're right. talking in a sexually violent way. Right. Okay? Sexual uh, and so, yep, there's they, and they're they're way worse than a sex predator. They are they're like three times worse uh, or more. Right. Three hundred times worse. Whatever you want to say. I'm going to say you're going to get get in trouble for putting a specific number with an opponent somewhere. <laughs> oh, somewhere. But the whole point is they're bad. And they're way right. worse than any other kind of offender. I mean, let's just Correct. put it that way. Correct. So how do we how do we fix the program? Well, there's a couple ways, and one of them is underway. Uh, there is an audit that has been approved unanimously, by the way, of this program in Sacramento. I cannot wait to see the results of that audit because they're going to be scathing. I can I'm, I'm because there's no way it can't be. Liberty is has cut has cut corners at every turn. So what is that audit going to do? That audit's going to give us the leverage to change the program. So that's number one. So the audit right. needs to come out and we need to get it and it's got to be scathing so we can fix the program. Number two, uh, state properties is where these folks should be. They should not be played. If so, if they have to be released, which I want them to stay in the mental facility forever, I want them to stay either in prison forever, in a mental facility forever, getting treatment, they should not be released. These people have reoffended. They are likely to reoffend. Uh, that's creating more victims. No way Correct. should they be released. No way. Correct. So I want that to change. Now, if they have to be released, then they should be released on state property. If the state wants us to manage them, they need to manage them on their property. The state needs to manage them on their property. So this has happened before. Uh, in fact, uh, Governor Duke Mason and Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, did this where they placed SVPs on prison property. So they were placed wow. on on properties of prisons in bungalows, right? Where they would they would be able to walk around the prison, but that's their freedom. They don't get to go into the main world. Right. And that, if we're going to manage them, that's the way to manage them. They shouldn't be near schools. They shouldn't be near uh, parks. They shouldn't be in a residential area where we're paying 10 grand a month as the taxpayer, in some cases more, to fund them. That's ridiculous. Right. You know, th you this know. Is, so anyway, all that's to say, 
there's lots of ways to fix this, but those are the first two ways. The last way, though, is also saying, look, law enforcement, where, and this is where I'd want their input, is how do we make it so, so that we can have a facility where they can go and stay and be managed by the state? Because if it's not a prison property, maybe it's other property somewhere. But how do we set up a facility for them that they're not in the community? You know, Andrew, you're the first politician I've ever heard speak an honest truth. Because when I talk to people, that's people's going to construe that as 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 being too authoritarian. It's these are repeat offenders. Science and the data shows that that more than most of them will repeat offend. And my issue is, well, if they're found guilty and they do their time. We have no right to hold them. So uh, hear me out. So either keep them in prison forever or set them up in their own community specific to them. And it sounds kind of like with the state, you know, having them on state grounds, things like that. That could lead to that where it's my issue is you serve your time, you get out. I'm not defending these sexual predators. I'm saying they're different. And yet we're looking at them in that same format as we do every other criminal, and we shouldn't. And I think your solution there is the start of something that can legitimately be seen as viable. But it seems like uh, uh, in my environment of politics, it seems like your belief that is sound to me is on the back burner for most people. They don't want to look at it that way. They just want to keep tossing in rural communities and people. Uh, Andrew did say it, but I'll tell you real quick before we move on. The reason they put them in rural communities, it's easier to keep track, less people, less headache politically. It's easier to get lost in the city. So there is some logic. The downside now is just a default. Toss them in our community without thinking about the potential ramifications. And there's more. I did one of those, you know, See where the 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 the, pedophil- the the or the sexual assault is. They're all over the place, and it's always been like that. So I appreciate that honest, candid answer. I only have you here for about ten to twelve minutes. I don't want to keep you, so I want to move on. But I appreciate that answer. And and to my friends, I, I'm not endorsing anybody, but these are the type of answers you you should demand out of out of your your politicians versus the nice uh, 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 platitude that we get. Or as you said, the, the individual who's going to go blow up. You know, Everybody thinks they're Trump. There's only one Trump. <laughs> I have some Valley That's Center specific. I have some Valley Center specific questions and actually the rural specific questions. Uh, I'll use myself as an example. I got a phone call six months ago. Uh, uh, my insurance. Hey, we're going to come out and check you out. And I knew what they were doing. Uh, sure. They were leaving the state and the headlines had come out. And I was angry because he wasn't being up front. And then finally I said, no, you do not have permission. And then finally he kind of told the truth. Well, I need to get out there. We're only going to be insuring an X amount and I need to check your lot. Uh, we're leaving the state. He goes, we are leaving the state. So I didn't quite understand the logistics, but I got him to admit the truth. And, and in my long-winded way, what I'm trying to say is we are losing the ability to purchase fire insurance in this state. And that's a big issue in this district. How can we know or be insured we'll have the ability to purchase insurance at a fair price? Now, let me add this caveat for the people, because it's not always that we're right and we're the victims. These insurance companies, they're losing money on us because of state regulations that limit what they can charge us. I don't want to be charged more, but they're saying we're not even breaking even, so we're leaving. So we're getting a choice of higher prices or nothing so so, so they can be a business. You know, So where do you stand on that, and how can you ensure that, that we're not left out in the cold? 
Sure. Yeah, this is a question I get all the time. Um, and I want to see a resolution uh, to this. And I know that there are a lot of people in Sacramento who do as well, um, and particularly in the insurance market uh, and the insurance provider. Um, so here's, here's part of the issue. The insurance commissioner has not done his job. So uh, Ricardo Lara uh, has, when he got elected, he said, um, I'm not going to speak with the insurance industry. Yeah, yeah I remember so, that. So you're telling me that you're not going to speak with the industry that you're going to regulate? I mean, this is insanity. So there was a proposition passed many years ago that kind of created the framework for how insurance was to be regulated in this state. When Ricardo Lara got elected, he did not interpret it as everybody else had interpreted Every other commissioner before him had interpreted it, right? So he interpreted it totally different to the extent to where he says, I'm just not going to, uh, I'm just not going to approve any rate increase or decrease filings. So for years, he let them just sit on his table. Well, now that, uh, it, you know, it's getting to a point to where the insurance companies are going, look, the fair plan is not the insurer of last resort. It's actually as expensive or in some cases more expensive than the private market. And it was supposed to be the insurer of last resort. Now, we know that when there's more insurance uh, companies, there's competition and that lowers prices. Well, correct. guess what? They they have to insure based on risk. So there's numerous things that have contributed to higher risk. One is the insurance commissioner refuses to say that you should decrease or increase your rates. That's number one. So now what's ending up happening is he's approving them all and it's 100% increases, 50% increases. And he's just saying, okay, we're going to do it. Well, that's horrible. That's not the way to do it. Secondly is one of the reasons that, that we've seen this uh, increase in risk is because the state has refused to manage its public property uh, for fire danger. So, you know, Valley Center, Lakeside, all of most of East County, San Diego is surrounded by state property that is ready to go up in flames. Just ready. Why? Because environmentalists have blocked any additional funding to land management. The second thing is, there's very few incentives for local land owners or local property owners to harden their homes. And there, there's no incentives for that, right? And so I would love to see there be more incentives for people to say, look, I cleared, I did all these things, I chipped, I put you know all this stuff in. Let's look at a program that works to, to, to reimburse, to help them, right? That would help with pricing. But the but the problem that we core problem we have is the way the state has designed fire risk assessment uh, and all of those other tiny little pieces the state has said have have increased risk galore. So state land management is one of them of property. The other thing is suppression resources. The state has refused to increase uh, wildland protection services, uh, whether it's through CAL FIRE or others. Uh, they, they, they will not, for example, the state has said, look, we're not going to increase engine capacity for there to be you know, more firefighters to be located in that area. They don't want to give more suppression efforts. They don't want to fund it. They want to fund the bullet train, but they don't want right. to fund these local measures that could help suppress a fire. Now, all those things, the insurance companies can then look at if we did it all together and go, Okay, the risk in your community is way better. What we've seen is that when a community gets up to, I don't know, 40 to 50% of their homes being hardened, the risk comes down greatly. So why aren't we as a state saying, 
We want to incentivize you with a grant program. Instead of saying we're going to give you a $60 billion to the bullet train, we're going to put $60 right. billion into insurance hardening that we're not, look, that we're not going to make, you know, we're not going to make, uh, you know, average everyday Joe pay for it, right? It's coming from a surplus, right? We're saying, look, let's fund these efforts and let's ongoing fund these efforts. Because what we know is as a community gets hardened, right, they get a hardened community for their fire danger, their risk goes down. Therefore, their rates will go down and insurance companies will be able to say, look, here we are. We, we want to be helpful. But the way the, the insurance commissioner has structured it right now is absolute uh, nonsense. And quite frankly, he needs to just do his freaking job because uh, right. that's that. Here's the major last point I want to make on this. I want to caution everybody before you ask the legislature to get involved, because remember who you're getting involved. You're not getting involved someone like me who just told you what I think we should do. You're getting involved people who want to who would want to create a fire insurance for all plan that says that everybody gets fire insurance all the time right. and it would look like it would look like single payer health care. So mm -hmm. your taxes would go up even more. That's right. So so I caution everybody to say, don't ask for a legislative solution that you don't want the answer to, because I will tell you, let's let's put pressure on Ricardo Lara first, get him to do his job, and then let's see what we can hammer out that's practical. But I will tell you that this issue affects so many people in Sacramento who are elected that we can find a real solution to this, but we need to be very cautious about how we do it because don't... Right. I'm just saying, this is one of those issues that you can't punt it because this is going to directly impact families and their ability to save their homes in, the, in a fire. So so I, I do understand. That. My issue is supply. I'm sorry, capitalism. You know, take the government getting in is what screwed all this up. You know, you need small regulations to keep these corporations honest. But I think the government, California government inserting themselves has just exponentially made this worse. Uh, I have you for about five minutes and I got about 15 minutes worth of questions. So I'm going to uh, uh, skip a couple of these. But real quick, if you want me to stay on longer, I will. Up to you. I'll stay to finish. Oh, that, that would be great. I just, I know this is election season and, 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 and I don't know worry. This I, you've got me important. for a bit. You can, you can have well, me. Thank you. Thank you. So uh, I don't want to repeat because you kind of talked about this before, but crime is a growing issue in your district, in the rural areas. Uh, Proposition 47 was passed in 2014. It changed certain low level crimes from felonies to misdemeanors. It allowed, and, and I'm saying this for the audience, it allowed, Andrew already knows this, it allowed for people previously convicted of felonies to be reclassified. So some felonies were dropped to misdemeanors. Uh, in essence, it, it made it better for the criminal, worse for the constituent. Uh, the legislature and governor in place today don't seem to want to, they seem to be happy with the status quo. It's changing a little bit. I think that's because of San Francisco and all the crime up there. But there's uh, 14 local cities want to make changes to Proposition uh, 47. And they have something they call the Homeless, Homelessness, Drug Addiction, and Theft Reduction Act on the November ballot with the goal of that to make changes, to make it, uh, uh, get, my assumption is to bring misdem some misdemeanors back up to felonies and start taking crime seriously. I'm assuming you support that, but uh, if you do, what do you think of some of the specifics? Is this something that could work, that could create an actual change we need? Absolutely. Uh, by the way, something is better than nothing, let me tell you. And, and um, here's the deal. 
I'm supporting this initiative. Uh, RDA here locally um, is working on it. I'm partnering with her. In fact, my office uh, in my campaign office, we have, we're getting petitions here soon so people can come by and sign. And I'm working with some of these local cities to help them with it as well. So no, th- this is something that I've committed to. Look, Prop 47, Prop 57 need to be repealed in their entirety. Um, and that's my belief. Um, and so this is a great way to start, right? Because if we can't get it done through legislation, we need to get it done through uh, uh, initiative and proposition. Uh, and so this is what we're working on. That's what that, I, and I'm all in on it uh, because I want to see it change. The fact that we even reduced those crimes in the first place and expected there to be no 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 repercussions is just idiotic. But but look, the bottom line is that is that is who many of these people are. So um, uh, you know that's the that's just how they go. You know, uh, uh, what irks me to death, and I loathe it as close to hate as it comes, is because people fought for it, is, you know, they do this, then crime goes down because they're not prosecuting or arresting people or, or, or sending them to jail. And then they turn around the politicians and go, oh, no, crime is down in your area. Well, if you're not prosecuting or you drop the felony to a misdemeanor, that's going to happen. But what irks me is the people actually fall for that line and it drives me up a wall. Uh, but then again, that said, uh, I think one lesson to learn from uh, what you would agree is the recall of the, the, the San Francisco DA, where all the rich, wealthy uh, districts all voted to keep him. But the working class, the poor, where the crime was rampant, uh, voted to uh, uh, oust him. And my point being is, they may say that, but luckily we're starting to realize that that's not true. Uh, uh, you that's can only uh, bleep on the people for so long before we go, hey, what you're saying isn't true. So uh, the final question in terms of Valley Center, you kind of answered it already, uh, uh, but to put it in Valley Center's perspective, uh, is housing. Again, our issue in this district, in the rural areas, is the, the infrastructure of the roadways. You know, as you know, as most people may not realize, but whenever development is uh, put up, they have to do a traffic study. Now, I know for a fact a couple of traffic studies were really glossed over here. They were done, technically speaking, but they we, we didn't even get to see one before we had the vote on the issue for one development. And, and, and in full transparency, we weren't voting on the development being built. That had been passed. It had to do with other things. But what caught my eye as a new member there was, well, we've never really talked about the traffic study. And my issue here is with all this development, all this housing, I'm not against housing. But I'm against it if if we don't have the infrastructure. You as our potential representative, uh, 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 and for the audience out there, uh, what Andrew alluded to earlier is no city or no county or, or was really hitting their housing numbers as the state wanted them to over the years. And, and, and the state never enforced that, saying you're not hitting your numbers. It, it just went along. And now we're at a point where the state has said, you're not hitting your numbers, so we're going to make sure you hit them. But my concern is they put housing up here, and we are—it's—it's it's a tragedy waiting to happen. As our representative, is there anything you can specifically do to force the county that hasn't built a road, at least in the Valley Center area, in over 60 years, but has added hundreds of homes, which means thousands of, of human beings and potentially 10,000 more cars, uh, and the county doesn't really want to build roads or expand our roads or do what's necessary. What, as our representative, can you do to change that? Well, a lot of this is uh, about, in my view, about relationships, right? And so uh, for me, being able to go and, you know, demand that the county, you know, write letters and host meetings. I think one of the, one of the key points is 
we have to bring everybody to the table on these things, right? It's like, look, where do we want the road? Where do we need the road? And how do we need to get it done, right? And what does it cost, right? Because these are all things that perhaps, you know, in the state in the state budget, they may want to fund a local road. And maybe I'll hear about it. Uh, and maybe I can say, oh, hey, Valley Center needs that, right? And then I can work with right. the county and, and, and talk about it, right? So that's one way. The state budget is one way. But that doesn't happen very often. Republicans uh, don't ever get a shot at the budget, as we talked about early on. Mm-hmm. But but the point I'm making is, is that uh, in Valley Center, in all these communities, Ramona, Lakeside, roads are going to be important and will remain important. No one's taking the trolley to Valley Center. So, you know, I mean, <laughs> exactly. so, 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 you know, roads are going to remain important. And so how can I help? I think one of the core things is, is you guys have existing projects. The planning group puts together existing requests. Uh, I can always support those efforts. I can always reach out personally to your supervisors and of course to, to local state agencies, right? So now let's talk about Caltrans for a minute. Mm-hmm. Caltrans may not do very much work up in your area and they may do right. Some, because they have some management responsibility of some right. of the roads in those areas. Mm-hmm. They may have plans to build stuff that we don't know about. And I can always say, let's expedite this. How do we get this done? How do we build it faster? How do we make it happen so that we can do this, right? And we've been working on the 67 in East County for years, and we're finally seeing some movement uh, with some money to help expand it a little bit, right? So Mm -hmm. finally, and by the way, it's been a decade, right? So like, we're finally seeing things move. So, you know, I want to be able to be a seat at that table to help you all, right? Because I drive, when I drive to Valley Center, you're right, it's grown a lot. And nothing, the infrastructure hasn't changed. I remember when I was in a Valley Center parade years ago, mm-hmm. the road looks the same, but you have right. a bunch of new area that has new housing. And Correct. so, and by the way, what you're saying, which is infrastructure improvements for more housing, just is common sense building, Correct. right? And developers aren't opposed to that, by the way. What, you know, f- what the problem is, is that they have a regulatory burden Right. That then they have they want to pick and choose. So they have 60 percent regulation. Then they have 80 percent more. Mm-hmm. I know many people would say we'll build a road. We have no problem building a road, but we just need to make sure that we can then do enough to pencil it so that it works. That's the common right. sense thing. Right. But I've run into so many people say, no, no, we'll build a road. We'll build a fire station. We'll do whatever we need to do. We want to make this stuff happen because that it just makes sense, right? You can't, you know, you don't build a two-story house without adding some extra bolts on the foundation to make sure it can support the weight, right? I mean, it's Correct. it's it's that simple. And, and it's the same way with development, right? But the problem is, is the state, what the state's going to do now is the state's going to come down on you and say, you're not doing it. We're just going to build it. Sorry. And, exactly. And, and all of us are going to say, well, wait, you're shoving it down our throat. And they're going to say, yep. Yes, we are. And people like me, people like you are going to raise our arms and flail and kick and scream and try to mitigate it as best as possible. And they're going to just be able to steamroll us anyway. Right. And so and that's because we've not had these conversations where we've said, let's sit at the table, manage our growth and make sure that we can have a growth plan. That's that's not going to destroy the character of a community like Valley Center or Lakeside. Right. And make sure that we can have measurable, reasonable growth so that we have goals to meet. It's the same thing with homelessness, right? It's benchmarks, set benchmarks. Correct, correct. In fact, and, and it's not just the government. It's the people, the, the local politicians. I, I was fighting somebody who said, uh, no, we beat that back and, and the state's not. In, they were, they had their heads in the sand. I'm like, 
the numbers will never add up. There's not enough housing. Something's going to break. And now we saw that damn break a couple of years ago with the state now saying you will start living up to your standards. Now, as bad as it is for us, and I have no love for the coast. I have no hate for them. I mean, just different parts. But they're the ones, boy, that the state would really hammer down. Where the heck do you build in those already rich places? So that, to me, is the comedy of it all. But the reality of it is building is really taking place more in rural areas where it's more affordable. And my fear, Andrew, is a massive fire that doesn't take one or two people out, but takes dozens out. And, and if that happens in a rural area, that means that's a massive fire. Uh, now, I, I have some questions here that aren't directly politically related, but are politically related. It deals specifically with you representing the district. Now, you, yep. you may hear me say Valley Center, but I'm really referring to the district. Uh, now, uh, again, I, I, I paraphrase some of your comments. I regularly meet with constituents and community leaders to update them on Sacramento and our concerns. Your office will be efficient and staffed by those who listen and resolve constituent issues effectively. I don't doubt the latter. One issue for myself and some people who understand the machine, the politics, uh, uh, is your predecessor. Marie Waldron never did that. Marie Waldron was oh, the only time I ever, I was involved in the party people in 2015. That's how I had the pleasure of meeting Andrew. Uh, and uh, I, I was heavily involved into the pandemic. Uh, I never saw Marie Waldron at any, any constituent created event. The only time I ever saw her was at Geo. P event. Uh, she spoke in a town hall format one time. That was last election cycle, I believe, or maybe the one before that. Uh, and since 2015, I, I've never uh, seen her uh, again anywhere. And and with all due respect, we did not elect Tom Stinson. Uh, uh, in all fairness, full transparency, Marie Waldron has a representative at every freaking event. So what I just said is true, but she has made sure to have her representative, Tom Stinson, at everything. But my issue is, we elected you, Marie. You need to show your face here. In my ideas, I was just threw I just threw a number out to a friend, like at least once a quarter, at least. You know, we did not elect Tom. I appreciate what Tom's doing, and uh, but I don't like that. I, I believe a representative should face the people, should answer for their votes, and you do not get that because the 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 messenger can is just that a messenger. How often or what is your goal? I'm not going to hold you to this, but obviously you've never held this position. Logistics of traveling, you know all that. But in your mind, uh, uh, what in your mind do you see as feasible? What is your goal in regarding the district the district's expectations to see you holding town halls in a calendar year? So for, I'm not going to hold you to this, but in a calendar year, how many times do you think you'll visit the district? Oh, well, I mean, I'm back uh, every weekend, uh, you know, the, so legislators fly up on Mondays or Sunday nights and they they come back on Thursdays. And so I'll be in the district Friday, Saturday and Sunday. And so and, you know, depending on when I come back on Thursdays, late Thursday afternoon. So my my goal is to be accessible, uh, as I always have been. And so I'd love to have minimum, I'm going to say minimum quarterly coffees. Right. So that means, mm -hmm. you know, all across the district. So if I do some, if I hit every community in a quarter, that means I'm hitting there. Let's say there's 10 different distinct communities in my district, which that's probably fair. That means I'm doing 10 community coffees a quarter, which that's pretty good. Uh, yeah, you know, it is. <laughs> uh, so, and so like, you know, if I'm hitting, if I'm hitting that, uh, you know, as regularly as I can, look, I, 
I want to be out among the people. I don't, I can't do my job unless I'm out talking to people who I serve. And so my, and I, and my belief has always been, if I'm out, you can, you, you know, you should be able to come and talk to me at a, at a mixer. If I can make it up now, this district is huge. It goes from the border uh, and Humboldt. Campo all the way up to Fallbrook and Valley Center and Borrego Springs. So I can't possibly be in Hamul and Fallbrook in the same Correct. day. Right. Correct. But now that's not true. I, I could probably in the morning and the evening. Right. But it would have to be in between. Uh, but the point is, is that, you know, I want to be as accessible as possible. I've learned that many communities, uh, they don't get to see their legislator. They share similar concerns that you do is that they don't always get to see them. And therefore, as a result, they don't feel represented. Right. And so um, I don't want anybody to, to do that, particularly uh, when my job is to work for you. And so, right. um, you know, so I I definitely want to do that. And in fact, I enjoy it um, and I enjoy going out and talking to people and having community town halls. So I'm quite excited to be elected because that'll be my favorite part of the job is being able to come back down and, and see the people who you know, aren't going to throw eggs at me and blow me up every day. Cause in Sacramento, they're going to be yelling at me all, all the time because I'm right. raising questions. Right. So I'll be among friends in the district. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, and, and, and I appreciate that. And it's not that I dislike Marie Waldron. I think in the bigger picture, uh, moving away from policy, moving away from our constituents' day-to-day lives is how do you make this a stronger uh, state, a stronger economy? And you have to have a strong, vibrant opposition party. And right now we don't have that. And I think part of that is the Marie Waldron uh, belief system. You don't have to go out and actually talk to your candidates. You can send a representative. And I'm not knocking her because some people don't care. Obviously, most don't care because that's how she's operated with with minimal questions. But I think moving forward, the new political world we live in with social media, with with with, with so much everything on film video, that's going to be expected. People are going to want, as silly as it sounds, people love their selfies with their representatives. And if that's one way to connect with them, then so be it. Bridges are derived between politicians and constituents in any way possible that that that, that can create the winning combination. Okay, so speaking of party, uh, you are a Republican. You are the endorsed candidate. And uh, uh, the party is at crossroads. Democrats obviously have the supermajority. And when I say the party is at crossroads, what I mean, we've been at crossroads since 2009, which in my research over the years, that's about the time we started to exponentially lose ground in this state. Uh, And if there's a time to change that, it's now based off the Biden regime, uh, how it's affecting California, based off of Newsom, you can only F on people. I, I I don't know the word politically correct. I want to get you in trouble. You can only bleep on people for so long before they start to ask questions. And we're at that point in my heart, I believe. Being born and raised in Panama, seeing two dictators, I've seen people. And the, the California people, now is the time to strike them with the conservative message. Uh, uh, now, in my long-winded way, uh, Marie Waldron, she's a woman. At one time, she was the most senior Republican in the state of California, a powerful, prestigious, inspiring position. To She did nothing to go around and grow the party with young women, with young adults. I'm not going to say she did nothing. She did minimal. To me, that was one of her greatest responsibilities. And the pushback I always get, William, that's not her job. And my take is, no, you're wrong. That is your job. That's how the Democrats have come to own us, growing the party, inspiring people, getting them to understand what's at stake. What will Andrew Hayes specifically do to grow the party, to inspire people, and to make it a viable alternative to the Democrat supermajority we have today? 
Yep, I love that question. Um, well, firstly, one of those ways is, you know, being present in my district. So that's one, right? I mean, when people get to meet their representative and they get to talk to them and they get to hear the ideas of who represents them, I think that's inspiring to people. So I think that's, I think that's number one. Number two is uh, there is a political context here, right? My job uh, when I'm elected will be to help uh, win us swing seats in this state and help us flip seats locally, not just recruit people, but help them win, right? Support them. Exactly. Help them win. And, and so Look, I, I have a track record of doing this over my my time. Uh, I flipped my whole school board from from a I was in the minority to now I'm in the majority five zero Christian conservative board. Um, and look, I had to go through battles to make that happen, right? And and we did, and we absolutely did. And so I, my goal is is to recruit good candidates, recruit good people to run for all these different boards and help us pick up seats across the county. And oh, by the way. Fun, help fund them, right? I'm not just going to say to them, oh, hey, look, you know, you don't get to sit and do it on your own. I will go and r- help raise money so that I can help them do their job, right? And help them get elected, which is their job when you're running, right? When they get when they get there and govern, you know, I want to help them too. But one of the things I've seen is we don't have a bench in our party. We don't build a bench. We don't set up a bench. We don't build anything. Um, and that's because, you know, we're fighting, we're busy fighting all these battles, but we have to make sure that we're bringing in people. So there's a couple ways that we do that. One is we recruit good candidates, right? We don't, we don't let them sit off to the wayside. We recruit them, then we support them, right? We help them with resources. The second thing is we have to have a robust and vibrant, um, you know, uh, in the community walk program, talking to voters, getting this information to them, sharing with them what their, their, uh, Democrats are doing and trying to swing them over, right? The independents and all these other people trying to register them as Republicans, right? right? I want to try to get more Republicans registered to vote. And, you know, I've seen different programs and the costs of a a program to register voters. We should all look together as local elected officials and go, okay, let's see how we fund that program, right? And then from the state level, I think what it comes down to is, it's these real quality of life issues. So, you know, let's take an example of, of some of the seats that are purple seats where a Republican can win, right? We have to make sure that someone like me and our and our state party is going into those districts saying, this stuff is wrong. We're supporting someone in this district who didn't doesn't support this crap. And here's what the crap is. Sex predators in your neighborhoods, taxing yeah. you out of your home, all of the things that resonate with people in a district that's purple, I think will help us, right? And so it's really about speaking about these things, going out, being present, and then, of course, building the infrastructure to man- maintain it and oversee it, right? And that, as an elected official, I believe is my job to help support the party in doing those things, right? They need to do they need to do their thing too, but I can help right. support it by pushing out the message by hiring staff, by helping pay for hiring staff. I don't need to hire them. They can, they can work in the party. And you're so in, you know familiar with how the party politics works is that my view is, is that if, if we were able to have more people out in the, the community doing branding for the party in all of the different communities that we can win, right? I mean, uh, in the Latino community and all the other communities that, that, by the way, are with us naturally. We just need to make sure that we tell them that we're with them and what we're about. It's all about right. communicating, right? It's all about communicating. And and I think right. that we just need to get better at communicating. And and I think there's so many ideas, right? Coffees with our, our you know, our leaders, coffee with our party leaders, uh, you know, even 
helping facilitate coffee with our central committee members, right, in different areas, right, and get people engaged with their central committee members, right? I think all of this stuff has to happen. But, you know, you can't, you can't do it without, I can't do it without getting there. And my view is, is that I just want to see something good happen. I want to see changes because where we're going is not helpful. Oh, and, no. and, and, and one of the reasons that we are where we are, and I will tell you this, is because we have Republican on Republican battles that we don't need to have. And, right. and we, don't, we don't do a good job as a party at coalescing around each other and supporting each other. We, tear, we have a tendency to tear each other down more openly than the Democrats. And, exactly. And, and to me, that, that actually weakens us because we're not moving together as a, as a cohesive infrastructure. Um, right. And so, look, we're in the super minority. We can't afford to fight each other all the time. But this is what we've done traditionally, and we need people that, look, I don't want us to fight each other, and I don't like those situations quite personally. I don't. And I want to see them different. I want to see it be different. But I can't have a seat at the table and do that unless I'm there and help move that needle. You know, uh, Andrew, uh, uh, before I move on to my second to last question here for you is uh, what I tell people is. You don't have to, uh, if it's a Latino, if it's a barrio, if it's a ghetto, if it's a trailer park, you know, your first thought process for a representative should be someone from your own community. But it doesn't have to be that person in the sense uh, in, in a barrio, you know, somebody like me could, could run for office and I'm Latino. Now. But my point is you want the best qualified candidate. Uh, but we're not even sending anybody in there. And I think that'll be the first step. And, and I hope you can do that if you are elected. I hope. Whoever gets elected does that because that was one of my massive peeves, pet peeves. Again, I come from a country where I've seen two dictators. I know mm-hmm. what it takes to, for people to rise up. I know the fear in that. But nobody's ever going to rise up on our side if our our people who we elect aren't willing to go into the, the, the lion's den themselves. And, and I think that's been one reason for our exponential fall from grace since about 2009. Okay, so to the audience, uh, I've talked to Andrew about this question. It's, it's a major sticking point with many of us. Uh, I, I'm not a gotcha guy, and I told him I was going to ask him. This is a tough question. It's an ugly question. It's a question he's got to look in the mirror or will be forced to look in the mirror one day. And I'm going to give a couple of specific examples to Valley Center of when that happened and we felt betrayed as Republicans out here. Uh, first of all, uh, uh, it's it's a negative term, but it shouldn't be. Andrew is what you would call a, a, a career uh, a governmental, a, a career in government. Most people say career politician, but that's such a derogative term. And the reason I say that is to understand politics, you have to be immersed in it. I, a lot of bad laws, I believe, are because people, they don't know politics. They understand the lobbyists get to them. They're, they're overwhelmed with power. Andrew knows the laws inside and out. That's when I met him. However, there's a downside to that. And the downside is that's a massive strength. But the downside is, and, and my question specifically is, how can you relate to the working class and understand their issues at times when they don't know if they're going to have a paycheck to pay the house bill or they've just been laid off? As a politician, you've got that steady check. Government, when my, I, I'm a military brat. Even as a child, Andrew, I always thought, God, thank God my dad's in the army because I see in the 70s all the unemployment lines, manufacturing going. So, how can you relate? Or how do you plan on trying to relate to the people since you've never been in the private sector? And 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 and, and to go on with that, 
it's akin to what, what I tell a lot of Republicans. One reason we lost minorities is because we're all equal. And I, I understand that. But uh, uh, growing up in the barrio or the, the ghetto is not like growing up in the suburbs. And we as Republicans kind of equate them all equally, not understanding there's different plights for different cultures just based off America's makeup. Not good or bad. That's just life. So how will Andrew Hayes relate and connect with those individuals? That's an important uh, 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 question, I think, because it also means it's part of the formula that helped bring the California Republican Party back to prominence. Yeah, well, uh, firstly, um, you know, I I do have a small business, um, and but the one thing is, is I've spent a lot of my career, as you know, you know, serving the public, and I actually think that that positions me better than anybody else. Uh, why is that? Uh, well, because I've heard and seen and helped solve problems for people from every stripe. Of in this district, whether they were Chamber of Commerce people, where I had to help them cut through red tape, uh, you know, in it, with their legislators and work to understand what that looked like, whether I was helping serve as the ombudsman for someone who needed food stamps, whether I was somebody who uh, was out at a, you know, a Chamber of Commerce event talking to, you know, whomever, right, whether it was a planning group, whether I was out at a town hall, hearing these concerns, seeing them, sharing them, helping execute uh, policy. Um, all of those things, uh, I think, make me well positioned. But just to give you a little bit of background, I don't come from wealth. Uh, you know, I, I've had to earn my my life just like my my family has. My mom was a, an engineer and my dad is a geologist. We I was born and raised in East County. Uh, I don't make a, a lot of money. Um, in fact, my public service career probably has made me less money <laughs> than than <laughs> than uh, I could probably go and, and earn. Um, but I think that that there have been other opportunities that I've had through uh, my business that I have as well that I've learned some other things as well. But I think the core thing for me is because I'm from this district, because my family's from this district, because I grew up here and my friends and family are here, uh, and I've been to the working halls of these folks. I've been to the auto shops. I've been to all these things. I've walked the, the job sites of all of these folks. I've seen the hard work that they do. You know, uh, I, you I know, believe. That's the best answer I believe you can give. You are not from, uh, I always tell people, Andrew, uh, uh, a lesson left to all you entrepreneurs, never forget the people who help you on your way up because we're going to come down. And it sounds to me like, like, like to me, that's, that, that's the answer. Uh, I, I don't want to say I was looking for, but that I think is the only answer as you were talking. I'm like, well, I'm thinking in my head, well, what's Andrew's background? Cause that's where it starts. So it's so a, a great answer. And I appreciate that. That was one of the two hard questions. The other one is you are a party machine. You are a member who was brought up and you are right. Uh, 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 my advice to the people out there when helping to determine or trying to help you to determine who to vote for, look at the individual's actions. You know, doesn't matter where they're from at the end of the day, it's how they choose to help you. Somebody who is a staunch conservative had nothing but praise for Scott Peterson. He said, Scott Peterson represented me. I had an issue with my child. And he was right there first and foremost. So I will never talk negative. I won't vote for him because I'm conservative, but I will never talk negative or down the man because he did his job when it came to my issue. And, and I believe you will do that because you know there's Democrats too. Uh, uh, and being the consummate uh, uh, human being is more important uh, uh, than anything else. Which brings me to this question. 
You are a party, uh, a machine, a party acolyte, meaning your whole career, your whole service has been in government, but through the Republican Party. Uh, we were betrayed by the Republican Party twice. Uh, we had a fire tax here that we wanted to get off of Cal Fire. We wanted to supplement because we're pretty much a, uh, a school. We teach and train our firefighters and they go off and earn more pay elsewhere. And we wanted to change that. So we were initiating a new tax here, but getting rid of another tax, you know, Carl DeMaio and other individuals in the Republican Party said, no, 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 we don't raise taxes. They knew nothing of the issue, but fell back on their party beliefs. The other one was the, was the Lilac Hills Ranch debacle, uh, uh, maybe 10 years ago now, maybe eight years ago, right around there, where overnight uh, the Republican Party gets a $50,000 donation. The next day they endorse the Lilac Hills Ranch project uh, of the development, which nobody here wanted. It was defeated resoundingly. But those are two instances where the party betrayed us. You are, I don't know what issue it will be, but in your mind, uh, 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 how will you approach a situation like that where you have the party's needs and the constituents' needs? And there's no right or wrong answer, people, uh, uh, because Andrew won't know until the specific issue comes up. But have you thought about that uh, in terms of uh, 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 the easy answer is the constituents? But in reality, you owe the party a lot for, for, for helping you in your career. Yeah. Um, so let me. Yeah. I, I mean, so my view is this. Look, I'm, I support the party. But I don't, I don't always agree with the party. And, you know, I've, I'm, look, I'm a party guy. I always have been. I, look, I believe the Republican Party is the better party and should be growing in this state. But I don't always have to agree. That's number one. Number two is, while the party helps me, right, and I help the party, it should be symbiotic, not, to, not right. parasitic. It should be symbiotic. I also am elected by more than just Republicans, so there are going to be people in this district who vote for me, uh, who are independents and maybe Democrats. And I'm sorry, but I have to represent my district first. I mean, I have to do that. That's my job is to represent my district. And so, you know, that's it. So these town halls we talked about, this is where I'm going to learn what those issues are going to be. And this is where if I can get ahead of some of these issues, we wouldn't have betrayals because I could sit at a table and say, look, Let's say you and others said, man, we really need this fire tax. We've got to figure this out. I can bring everybody together and say, okay, we're going to educate. We're going to have a conversation and we're going to go separate ways perhaps, but we need to have a conversation so that we all went in with the real facts and we knew what we were doing. Because one of the biggest issues that we have on any of these hyper-local issues that you're speaking to is people don't know what they don't know. And at the end of the day, if you know something, but that person, you never met with them or they didn't tell you or you didn't call them and tell them, it's hard to know Correct. if they did. Right. And so for me, I want that's why I want to be present in the community. And then I want to be able to say, look, if you've got this issue, let's let's do a little town hall. Let's or let's do a little roundtable and let's bring the movers and shakers who we need together. And talk about this stuff because there may be needs of a community that 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 the party may say no, we can't do that. And by the way, I would just say that on one hand, on a tax issue, the party is standing firm, saying, "Look, we don't support tax increases." Right? So they're standing firm on their on their party platform, saying those things. I don't support tax increases either. So it would be very hard for me to get there with a tax increase, right? Because I don't support tax increases. I've defeated taxes, in fact. So, you know, so I you think know, that- Andrew, 
you are correct. And, 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 and our issue here was stay out of our fight if you disagree with your own Republican base in this area, because we know the issues. And that's what didn't happen. They had to stick their two cents. My point is there was a complete lack of communication between the party and the Central Committee members. But in the party's defense, that's on the Central Committee. As, as You don't have to admit it, but I'll say it, we have very weak no, Central no. Committees. The Central Committee yeah. makes these votes. Yeah. No, you're right. The Central Committee makes those votes. I'll just tell you this. Uh, I want people to call me from Valley Center, from Lakeside, from Ramona, from Fallbrook when I'm elected and say, Andrew, this issue is happening. We need you to pay attention. We need your input and we need your help. If I don't hear about it, I need that. I need people to come in and tell me those things. And so that way I can do my job and help you. Right. But if I if I don't know about it and then you come to me after say, what the heck? And I'll go. We could have done a meeting. I would have done it, but maybe I didn't know because it was so hyper local. So who knows? No, I, I appreciate that answer. And uh, uh, at the end of the day, there's various ways and avenues that, that, that take care of that. And I truly appreciate you saying that you represent both sides. Uh, 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 usually with fundamentalists is when I get into this argument because my mother, I come from a fundamentalist family. And I'm like, you don't understand. The politician also has to represent those 48% who believe in abortion. He's got to find that middle ground. And and I hope nobody takes this out of context and uses it against you. But, but thank you for saying that. You do represent all individuals coming from a country that I've seen torn apart uh, over the years and seen some of the same things happen here. We need people to try to bring us together. Final question, but real quick, what are your two degrees in, Andrew? Uh, Business administration and uh, political science. I was going to say, uh, my partner's like microbiology or some super thing. You are a down-to-earth man. I always tell people, your guidance counselor is going to tell you don't get the business degree because every Tom, Dick, and Harry has them. But at the end of the day, you need them because you learn fundamentals. So uh, good answer. The final question, I wanted to get your your reaction. This is, no, this is nothing to do with uh, laws, policies, anything. This has to do with the campaign. I've known Andrew since 2015. Andrew's a conservative. I met Carl DeMaio shortly thereafter. I'm not pitting these two, but I have to ask you this question. I, I, I got all my mails. I checked my, 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 my rural box, which is my junk mail collector, about 50 mailers. Let's see if I can put this up. And this was one of the mailers. And in essence, one of your opponents is in essence saying that you are amnesty Andrew Hayes, can't be trusted on illegal immigration. You want to welcome with open arms those seeking refugee. You, you want at taxpayers' expense for us to pay everything. Now, I'm, I'm not going to put words in your mouth, but I've known you since 2015. And when I saw this mailer, my the first thing that came to my mind was, a negative hit piece, but worse. It's a Republican willing to lie about another Republican. But that said, that's how I took it. How do you defend yourself in your own words against these uh, allegations? And Amnesty Andrew Hayes demands taxpayer funding for illegal immigrants. Take it from that perspective, and this is what they're trying to say. Yeah, well, that's just patently false. Uh, and look, I would not be endorsed by the National Border Patrol Council if I supported Amnesty. Okay, I mean, let's be fundamentally clear. I wouldn't be supported by Daryl Issa. I wouldn't be supported by all of our conservative leaders if I did not, if I supported amnesty. So that's the first part. The second part is, um, this just goes to show you great taking out of context. In fact, uh, I was, uh, what he's trying to reference is a press conference uh, where I said that Title 42, the policy that expelled illegal immigrants during the Trump era, should stay in place 
because I don't want to see a humanitarian crisis occur. That is what mm-hmm. I, that is where I was uh, coming from on that perspective. So quite to the contrary. Uh, but of course, look, a never Trumper would would say that about me, <laughs> that a Trump policy, uh, you know, uh, you know, of course you don't like Trump policy, so you want to bash me on them. That's fine. But Title 42 kept us safe and I wanted it to stay here. So, and that was, that was the the deal. And, but I wouldn't be supported by the National Border Patrol Council and all of our conservative leaders if I supported freebies for illegals, let me tell you. No, I understand it. I thought, I, I thought, I think it's a sad indictment. You said it earlier. Uh, I'll just enhance it by saying if we would fight Democrats or our opponents uh, on the other side as fiercely as we fought each other in the primaries, we'd have more W's. And with that, Andrew, I, I, I thank you so much for your time. I know this yeah. is your busy time and thank you for placating me. Uh, and for everybody out there, uh, you can check this podcast out and other podcasts at grumlingsmedia.com. We have various political podcasts, sports podcasts, and entertainment podcasts. And uh, Andrew, I know I will be following up with you regardless as as, as we're going to be delving into local politics. And I just want to wish you much success on the campaign trail. And more importantly, stay safe out there. To everybody, Andrew Hayes, candidate for the State Assembly District 75. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you. Thank you. We'll see you. Everybody else, until next time, thank you for listening. Once again, this is William Del Pilar, and this is the Fired Up Podcast. And until next time, I bid you adieu.